Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 14 today. Let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, thank you for uh, just your word. Thank you for communicating to us. And Lord, we confess today that we believe your word is inerrant. It's infallible. It's authoritative. It comes from inside of you. It's true. And, and, and anytime your word hits us, it brings life, just like it did with Adam and Eve and the, the valley of dry bones and all throughout history. Your word, your communication brings life. And so, Lord, we invite your spirit to couple with the word that is living and active and that we invite him to, to do the work that he does, which is opening our eyes to see the, the truth of your will and your word, to convicting us of sin where we need conviction, of encouraging us where we need when we're discouraged. And so, Spirit, come and, and just be with us in these next moments as we unpack this story, this, this long chapter with some twists and turns. Some of it is strange for our contemporary cultural ears to hear, but we just ask that you would do a good work in these next moments together. Finally, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, when I was in middle school, uh, one of the high school boys in our youth group died of cancer. And, and it, was, it was a horrible death. And he was a wonderful young man. He, he was one of the leaders in our high school as well as in our, in our youth group. And he loved Jesus. And he, he loved Jesus in, in a real infectious way. And in fact, kids at school were really drawn to his kindness. They were drawn to his, to his passion. And as a result, people were drawn to his God. His death wasn't fair. It wasn't right. It wasn't good. And, and even for the adult leaders in the church, it, it became kind of a crisis of faith. Like, like, why would God allow someone so faithful, someone so good to die? Like, why, why would God allow someone that was so young to die in such a horrible way? It was hard. And, and to make the crisis of faith more difficult is that we had, we had all prayed for his healing. And not like that polite prayer. I'm talking like fasting, begging God. And in fact, we did what we should have done. Like we stepped into that, believing that God could and that God would heal him. And then God in his good sovereignty and in his grace, he told us all no, and he took his soul up to heaven. And it was a crisis of faith. It was, it was hard to receive from God. And as a result, many people in that group uh, struggled to trust God again, to, to believe God again. And, and in our grief, it forced us all to, to really evaluate our intentions and our motivations as it related to God. Were, were we using God in order to get what we wanted, which was this good thing of this young man to be healed? Why were we following the Lord? It, it, it caused us to really evaluate the nature of God and, and his goodness. It, it all felt like Job and his wife's pain. You remember the story of Job, right? Where, where there's this cosmic thing going on in heaven where, they, where, where they're going to test Job in his faith. And so God allows Satan to, to come and test him. And the way he tests him is that Job loses his property first. Then he loses his children. And then he loses his health. And then we read in Job chapter 2, 9 and 10, Then his wife said to him, 
Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not also receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin in his lips. See, my friend's death, it forced me to ask some things about my relationship with God. Was my relationship with God primarily about me? Or was my relationship with God primarily about Him? What was being faithful really about getting what I want? Or was it really about doing what He wants? What was my spirituality just turning God into this talisman, this, this rabbit's foot, this tarot card where I could kind of manipulate and get the things that I wanted? Is that really what my spirituality was about? Was my relationship with God really just about magic, trying to get this thing that I wanted? In 1 Samuel 14, we're going to continue to see King Saul kind of slide down this slope deeper and deeper into foolishness. But like how God related to Adam and Eve, God is continuing to give King Saul an opportunity to repent, to to turn back in faithfulness. But in in 1 Samuel 14, he's going to continue to slide to, to deeper lows. However, what I think is the real struggle with this passage is if you, if you kind of just have a cursory reading of it, it's difficult to see what's wrong with Saul's faith here. Like, like his struggle, where he strays, if you will, is very subtle. Like some of you are going to read this and you're going to say, listen, if I'm being honest, I, I don't understand what's wrong here. I can understand what he's doing wrong here. You, you see, the story reveals something very subtle in his heart. And, and we're going to see him make a rash vow. And we've we got to peel back, why, why is it rash? Why, why was it so foolish? And it was foolish for a couple of reasons, because it was really driven by vengeance. And, and it was also using God in this superstitious way, rather than from a pure heart. We're also going to see in this passage a, a contrast. And the contrast is really, really important to understand. In the contrast, uh, what God is doing is contrasting King Saul with his son Jonathan. And there's a really sharp contrast. And we're going to see in Jonathan a man after God's own heart. And, and he lives life differently. He faces things differently as a result. But, but in the end, this chapter is important. Because all of us can be driven by vengeance. All of us can ultimately, if we're honest, uh, use God as kind of this, this talisman, this, this rabbit's foot, and this superstitious way to ultimately just try to get what we want. So we're going to have to ask some honest questions about our faith today. But ultimately it's going to cause us to break free from the bondage of superstitious foolishness and trust God for salvation. Let's first look at Jonathan and then we'll look at King Saul. The first charge as we look to Jonathan is to trust God for salvation, verses 1 to 23. I'll start with verses 1 to 5. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Geba in the, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabob's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sanah. 
The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Let me set the scene here if you weren't with us last week. The Israelites are in a war with the Philistines, and the Philistines have invaded Israel. And as the story has gone, there's, there's been some victories, but, but even in Israel's victory, it caused the Philistines to respond in a stronger way. So they've come with more men and more soldiers and, and more equipment. But, but in this war, there's kind of a story within the story, and that's really the most important part. Within the story within the story is, is that God is, is going to call out a king after his own heart. He's making clear that he wants a man after his own heart. And things aren't going well. The, the Philistines have responded in this way to where the Israelites are outgunned, they're outmanned, and they're very discouraged. They've been panicked. But, but the, the tide is about to turn. A hero is going to come onto the scene and, and help the, the tide of the war turn. And the way God is going to, to, to deliver his people and bring salvation is through the, the bold faith of Jonathan. In, in these next five verses, uh, they, they set the scene about the initiative that he's going to take. But, but he's noticed that he's not acting according to the leadership of his father. He's acting according to the leadership of his heavenly father. His faith in the Lord is, is what's going to drive his actions. And his actions are pretty wild, okay? Like think special forces, Mission Impossible, James Bond, whatever you need for this image. Like that's what's going on in Jonathan's life. The, the, the mission that he's about to set out on is pretty ridiculous. It's pretty wild. And it kind of takes some really bold faith to carry off. He's going to display courageous faith. Okay, let's look from 6 to 15. And 6, I think, is the key verse of the entire chapter. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may, be, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving many or, or by few. Verse 7, And his armor bearer said, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So he, so he has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you this thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after them. And that first strike when Jonathan and his, that his, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Like I said, this is kind of a wild, weird, certainly courageous scene. What's going on here is these two guys climb up the face of a mountain to get what I think is higher than the Philistines, and then they come down upon them. But notice the scenario, the sign that he sets up. 
This is maybe the weirdest part of the whole thing. He says, listen, if they see us and they say, come on over, that's our sign. So he's not saying that we're going to sneak up on them and surprise them. He's saying that if they see us and invite them into, uh, invite us over, then God's going to give them into our, our hands. That doesn't make sense, okay? Like, like this, is, this doesn't make human sense. This is weird. This is wild. This is superhero type stuff, okay? This is heroic what happens. But notice the heart behind the heroism. N- notice a few things here. L- look back at verse 6. Th- this is the key to understanding Jonathan's heart. First, he labels the Philistines the uncircumcised. Now, if you remember the story of David and Goliath, it's going to happen later. That's how David mocks the Philistines there. So, so, so there's a, a mocking going on by calling them that. But this isn't a sinful mocking. This isn't like, ra- like Hebrew racism that's happening, okay? This isn't a sinful mocking because there's something deeper and theological and very spiritual that's going on in that mock. They understand that, listen, the Philistines, we're the same. We're sinners before the Lord, made the image of God. We're the people of God. There's something different about us that's connected to God's covenant promises to us. And we're relying upon those covenant promises here. So in the mock and in the battle cry, there's actually this this deeper confession of faith in the promises of God. That's what's behind uh, the the mocking. And that's where his confidence comes in. Jonathan doesn't think he's awesome. Jonathan thinks God is awesome. And he believes his covenant promises. Number two, we're to see that, uh, that, again, this isn't racism or this isn't sinful mocking. Because he says here that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Again, Jonathan, is as he scales the face of this mountain and attacks this army, this army with, with better weapons and a lot more people, he was believing in the promises of God. Again, it's not that he thought he was awesome and that he could slay 20 Philistines. He thought God was awesome. His confidence was was in the Lord. That's why he went up that mountain. But, but, but third, also notice uh, that, that, that we read, it, it may be that the Lord will work for us. That, that's a pretty humble statement, right? Maybe he will. We're going to scale this mountain. We're going to attack these uncircumcised Philistines. God's promise is with us. God is with us. And maybe it will work out for our good. There's a humility there. There's a devotion there. You see, he's willing to accept God's will, even if it doesn't go his way. Like he's willing to say, listen, I'm going to try to be faithful. I think this is right. And you know what? Maybe it'll go my way. Maybe it wasn't. But this is up to the Lord. Jonathan's faith, it wasn't superstitious. It was deeply spiritual. Do you see that? Maybe it'll go the way that he wants it. Maybe it won't. But he's going to trust the Lord no matter what God says here. He, he was not just using God to get what he wanted. Rather, he wanted God, uh, and that's why he did God's will. I, I believe verse 6 reveals uh, a heart that is trusting God for salvation. But like Notice that the armor bearer, he talks about, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm, I'm with you, heart and soul. That's where the armor bearer goes, goes in this conversation. This is a deeply spiritual thing for these two men. They're not trying to manipulate religion to get revenge, or, but they're, they're attempting to glorify God in this. This is a deeply spiritual thing that they're doing in attacking the Philistines. And, and notice that Jonathan's plan worked, right? Like, heroically, these two men killed 20 men. But more importantly, notice how the, the panic has shifted. 
No, no longer are the Israelites going to be hiding in holes. But, but this sets apart a, a just a panic amongst the Philistine. And, and then God like gives his stamp of approval and brings an earthquake. And so we see that God saves and the demoralized people of God now had a reason to be inspired to battle. Let's keep reading 16 to 23. And the watchmen of Saul at Geba of Benjamin looked. And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the, ark, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against this fellow. And there, and, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had, been, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim and heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth Aven. Jonathan's faithful hero, uh, heroism, it inspired God's people, and it sent the Philistines into panic. God is the one who sent the earthquake. Verse 23 clearly says, God gave the victory, but the avenue that he chose to do it was through this man, uh, Jonathan, and his faithfulness. Again, the story ultimately teaches us to trust God for salvation. But, but Saul now enters the story. And the, the, the contrast between Jonathan and Saul, that, that's really the key to, uh, to seeing the truth in the story. How different these guys are, specifically their hearts specifically their, their religion and their spirituality, their spirituality. Jonathan was confident in the covenant promises of God. He also displayed this, this maturity about him where he would humbly accept God's will, even if it was different than his own. And Saul's heart was very different from Jonathan. Notice here, let's be clear. Saul was, was not like this angry atheist trying to like convert people to atheism, okay? Let's be clear about who he is. He wasn't this like, wild, licentious, mean man, like torturing people for his own pleasure. That, that's not the, the sin. That's not the heart that we see here. He doesn't display these kind of obvious sins. It, it's much more subtle, but there's something off in his heart. There's something subtle about his heart that is off. King Saul uh, could clearly see that he had an opportunity to turn the tide of the war. That's not bad. He's thinking ahead. He's being a king. He's saying, listen, we have an opportunity here, but notice what he does here. He does first the religiously superstitious thing, right? Bring the ark up. Bring the rabbit's foot up. Let's rub the rabbit's foot and it'll go well for us. He does the religiously superstitious thing. Now, if you think I'm too hard on him, I'm not. Because what happens when he sees that the religious thing gets in the way of what he really wants? He, he tells the priest to stop what you're doing. We've got to get into battle. He doesn't wait on the Lord. You see, he's using the religious thing to accomplish the thing that he really wants. And when he sees that he, what, that he can get what he really wants in his own strength, he, he does away with the religious thing. Do you see this? This is the key to the, his, the passage here. It is Saul has a superstitious faith. This is very different than Jonathan's faith. Jonathan's faith was, listen, 
Come what will, I'm going to be faithful. Saul is, I'll, I'll jump through the religious stuff. I'll do the tarot cards. I'll show up to church. I'll rub the rabbit's foot as long as it goes the way that I want. But, but if it gets in the way of what I'm really wanting, then priest, get out of the way. We've got more important things to do. His faith is superstitious. He's willing to jump through the religious hoops if it accomplishes what he really wants. Now listen, that's very consistent with his faith from the previous passage, right? If you look at the previous chapter, the same thing happened. But like he's willing to do the religious thing. He'll wait seven days for the prophet, but I'm not going to wait eight. Like there's a time limit there. There's a condition there. Is there a condition to your faith in the Lord? Are you following him? Are you doing the religious stuff? Are you showing up here today in order to get something from him? Or are you here to get more of him? Do you see the distinction? Saul is using God to get what he wants. It's superstition for him. He believed the religious stuff was helping, uh, was not helping him, but hurting him to get his ultimate goal. So he forced his will is what it says in the previous chapter. And he told, tells the priest in verse 20, withdraw your hand. In other words, suspend your religious activities because that's getting in the way of what we're really here for. King Saul continues to slip down this slide of foolishness and God was wanting a man after his own heart. Instead, he got a man with a superstitious heart that wanted to use God to get what he wanted. But God still saved the day. Verse 23 So the Lord saved Israel that day. Despite Saul's foolish superstition, God saved his people. Therefore, we're left with this call to trust God for salvation. Let's keep looking at at Saul. And the second charge is to break free from the bondage of foolishness. Look at me in verses 24 to 30. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Verse 25. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the, the, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, uh, the, the, his father's charge of the, the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes were brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright, because I've tasted a little bit of of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today for the spoil of their enemies they had found. For now, the defeat among the Philistine has, Philistines has not been as great. King Saul's vow was rash. It was foolish. It was reckless. This is the type of vow that's talked about in, in Leviticus 5.4, where it, it puts a rash vow in, in the category of a sinful vow. Now, we have to be careful here because vows in and of themselves are not sinful. If you even just look at Leviticus and the offerings in Leviticus 2 and Leviticus 3 with the grain offering and the peace offering, righteous vows were part of those two offerings. So the vow is not the problem. It's the rashness of it. The problem was, the problem was that it was foolish really on two fronts. Number one, this was, notice that it was driven by revenge. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This means that Saul was trying to bring about justice in his own strength. He wasn't trusting the Lord for justice. So he, he was not, as he demonstrates here, a man after God's own heart. But, but also the, the problem with his vow that it was so irrational was for superstitious reasons. First uh, Timothy 4, 7 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. That, that gets to the, the heart of the problem. That gets to the heart of the problem of superstition and rash vows is that superstition, it's trying to shortcut the the sanctification process. Instead of training yourself for godliness, you're messing around with magic and tarot cards and astrology. You're trying to supersede all that. You're trying to shortcut what God is doing, this, this natural, spiritual way of the way God sanctifies us and trains us in godliness. That's hard. That's difficult. That takes time. There's not shortcuts to it. But that's what superstition tries to do. But it affects other people. It's not just about Saul and his relationship with God. It's going to affect other people, right? Uh, this week in our elder meeting, we, we looked at this passage and kind of that point. And we noticed that, that listen, you know, this was a, a, a foolish decision by a leader. This, this was a rash vow. There was something off in his heart. He was using God to get what he wanted. But, but, but really the problem here is that it impacted other people. I think it's a really important point, right? Like your spiritual life, it's not just you and Jesus in some closet. Like the things that you believe and how you live your life, that affects other people. And to be clear, it affects the ones you love the most. And so if this is a struggle for you today, know that it's going to affect other people. And in Saul's case... His people were tired and they needed to eat. Like they had done good work that day. They had fought faithfully. They, they had, had defeated the Philistines. And what they needed from their leader what was this opportunity to catch their breath, get something to eat, and then keep fighting. But this foolish oath, this is what gets in the way. And, un- and unknowingly, Jonathan broke the vow. But interestingly, he also defies the king here. Notice that he says in verse 29 that his father troubled the land. That's not a good sign for Saul's leadership. Let's keep going, 31 to 35. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to uh, Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. They told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. It was not right what the people did. They weren't supposed to eat meat that way. They were sinning against God because they were going against His Word. But what we're supposed to see here is their sin, their failure, is linked to Saul's foolishness. Do you see that? Saul put them in this position. Saul was foolish in his leadership, and these guys were starving. They'd been fighting all day, and that's what led to their sin. They're responsible for it, but there's a link to the irrational leadership of their leader. Let's keep going in verse 36. Then Saul said, 
Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down to the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? This is key. But he did not answer him that day. Verse 38. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people. And, and, know, and know and see this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all of Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son shall be on the other. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me, Or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people of Israel, give Thermum. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. First thing I want you to see is that God was not responding to Saul. This is a very scary moment. The, 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 God, through his, his, his word and his prophet, had been rebuking King Saul. King Saul had not uh, uh, submitted to him. He hadn't repented and turned back in faithfulness. He, he had kept his religion in this uh, superstitious way. And then he comes up with this superstitious test to determine, okay, what cosmically is going on. And he basically resorts to like drawing lots here or, or casting uh, dice here. He's like reading tarot cards. This is foolishness. This is what erratic people, not spiritual people do. He's trying to shortcut his spirituality to try to figure out how God was leading him. He, he's reading uh, tarot cards. He's resorting to magic tricks. But the foolishness is also seen that he rashly once again puts himself and his son at risk. He does this casting of lots things. He says, listen, even if it falls on my son Jonathan, I'll kill Jonathan here in this moment. And that's how it it falls. Let's keep reading 43 to 46. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me, what have you done? And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do to me more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair on his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Verse 46, Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their place. This might, at a, at a real shallow reading, seem like kind of like this gloriously faithful moment for Saul. Kind of like Adam or uh, Abraham willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. But in reality, this is just foolishness once again. This is foolishness born from a heart of, of trying to control a wild God with superstition. You see, Saul is not displaying bold faith. He, he's displaying bold foolishness. And further, Saul has lost his moral authority. Do you see this? This isn't Western democracy going on here. This is a monarchy. If the king says it, it's done. But the the people have revolted against him, okay? They've done something that they should not do. Like they've stood back up to the king. 
Why do they do it? Because the king has lost moral authority. This has just spiraled down into craziness. I mean, we're going to kill Jonathan over this? You're the fool in this moment, is what they say back to him. And so, as a result of Jonathan's faithful heroism, he's saved that day. Look at these final verses quickly. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. Against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zorbah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. Verse 48. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Notice here that we're landing here with the, with the virtues of Saul. He's a real person. This isn't myth. This is history. We get virtues and vices from him. He's ultimately a foolish leader that's rooted in this heart. And God's going to take away his kingdom. But here we see Saul faithfully doing what kings should do. And then in verse 49. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishva, Ishvi, Malachi, Shua. And the names of his two daughters uh, were these. The name of his firstborn was Merah. And the name of his daughter was Michal. And the name of uh, uh, Saul's wife was Ahinam, and his daughter Ahimaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner the father of Abner, the son of Abiel. There, verse 52, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Friends, when we turn to God out of superstition rather than for salvation, it's foolishness. That's what we're supposed to take away from the story of King Saul. He's blinded by the wisdom of the world versus uh, trusting the wisdom of the world. And ultimately, Saul was a foolish person because he was not a man after God's own heart. He, he was a man who foolish, foolishly trusted God but trusted him only superstitiously. He was using God like a, a rabbit's foot to get what he wanted. There, there was limits to his devotion. If he, would, if he got what he wanted by following God, then he would follow God. But, but if he didn't get what he wanted by following God, then he would abandon following God. First Samuel is a call to break free from that type of bondage, that type of Saul-like foolishness. Listen, like, like Adam and Eve before Saul, God was giving him an opportunity to repent. Friend, if your faith is like King Saul's, he's giving you an opportunity to repent. He's giving you an opportunity to turn to something better. He's giving you an opportunity to replace that superstitious faith with this deep spirituality. Let's get real maybe for a moment here. Is your spirituality really about treating God like a rabbit's foot that, that you use to get what you want? Is that really why you're here even today? Are, are you here today for more of God or to use God to get more of what you want? Friend, if that's you, God is offering you something better. He's offering you something richer. Jonathan teaches us about a, a better faith, a better way to live life. Don't you want to be like Jonathan in this story? Like there's a boldness and, and, and a freedom in his life. He's willing to scale a mountain and attack 20 men and believe that it's right, but if it goes wrong, he's going to trust the Lord. That, that's the way I want to live my life. That's the way I, I pray that you see that there's something better there than the way Saul is living his life. Do you trust God for salvation? 
However, key to that type of faith is, is believing that, that God will be with you in your mistakes. There was a humility about Jonathan's faith, wasn't it? Maybe he'll give us victory. Maybe this is the wrong move. But, but he trusted God no matter what. You see, God is good enough to, to teach us in our mistakes, to, to remain true to his covenant promises through our mistakes. Our, our salvation is not through our own perfection, but it's through his perfection, him keeping all the promises. Do you, do you trust that promise-making and that promise-keeping God for your salvation? Are, are you dealing with some sort of mistake today? If you are, know that God is faithful to his promises. Guys, I, I didn't want my friend to die in high school. It was awful. And this week, as I reflected upon him again, I was just inspired again by that young man. I was just inspired by the way he lived his life. I want to be more like Jeremy Stancil. It made me sad thinking about what could have been. Like it, his death was hard. It wasn't good. It tested my faith. It tested a lot of other people's faith in the Lord. But it reminded me once again that God will not be tamed you showing up here today is not going to cause God to give you all the things that you want. God will not be tamed. In other words, Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead to be this lucky charm fulfilling all of our desires. You see, like, like Jonathan, men after God's heart, they want more than God's gifts. They want God. They want Him. He is the good news. He's the gift. He's the treasure. He's the thing that is good and is soul satisfying, no matter what the circumstances are. Amen? If it goes your way, praise God. If it doesn't, He'll give you something better. You, you see, someone who is a man after God's own heart says things like Job 2. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? They say things like 1 Samuel 14.6. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Don't settle. Don't settle for a superstitious faith when you can have this mature, life-giving, soul-filling spirituality. God would not be tamed. He's not a rabbit's foot. God is the gift. Having Him is better than any trinkets of the world. Break free from the bondage of foolish spirituality by trusting God for salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we admit that this is a strange story and a long chapter. There's some weird twists and turns that, that our contemporary cultural ears maybe have trouble getting our head around even what's going on here. But Lord, we see a man who, maybe on his face, maybe on the outside, seems like he's faithful. But the trials, the difficulties, as time goes on, it betrays his heart. He's not a man after God's own heart. He was using you superstitiously. Father God, we confess that we struggle with that same struggle. We think that we're entitled to things. We, we, we think that if we jump through this hoop or do this or do that, that you're going to give us what we want. But Lord, we know that you're not to be tamed. You won't be tamed. 
you give us something better than what we want in our fleshly desires. We praise you for that today. May we be people like Jonathan with great boldness and courage, climbing a mountain, attacking an enemy that just seems impossible uh, for us to win against. May we do it with boldness and we also do it with humility. May we have that type of freedom, that type of faith in you. May we not have a superstitious faith. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray.